Well, I'm really, really excited to be here. Uh, man, I've known Vince for a while, and it's just been uh, great. He's always been just uh, so encouraging every time we see him. And uh, yeah, I haven't uh, been, I was thinking of the old Kaleo, and uh, there, was, uh, I, I, there was months where I remember preaching during that transition every Sunday morning. And uh, so it feels uh, kind of sweet to come back and just uh, see what, what God's done over the last years. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, the passage, the, 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 the verses that I want to share with you uh, have been probably the most impactful verses in terms of our life and our ministry for me and my family uh, in the whole Bible. And so uh, I'm going to be speaking things that, that are very near to my heart and just hope that they can encourage you guys uh, this morning. So let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for loving us. Thank you that while we were poor and crippled and blind and lame and unable to pay you back, that you left heaven and left your home to come and to make a way to invite us back into your home, to make us family. You came to save enemies, rebels, failures, people that had nothing to offer you, and yet you loved us, and you have rescued us, and ransomed us, and washed us with your blood, and made us white as snow, and now you welcome us into your presence, even now through prayer, and one day physically for all eternity, and so we thank you for that. Uh, pray that you will open our hearts to understand these things that you said when you were here on earth. Uh, and how you would want us to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The verses that we're going to talk about today, they're, they're so kind of jolting and, and unexpected and kind of just turning your world upside down verses that I, I kind of feel like uh, they, they don't need much of an introduction. I just want to read the verses and then kind of contemplate. What, what does Jesus actually mean why on earth would he say these things? How on earth does he uh, expect anybody to apply them? And, and what would it even look like if they did? Uh, so the verses are in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. It's the Sabbath day. Jesus is eating over at a ruler of the Pharisees' home. And this is what he says in the middle of their meal. He said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. So the first thing we see in this text is basically Jesus is dividing up people into, into two groups. He's saying there's two groups, and they're going to be different for every single person, but two groups of people in your lives. The first group we all know. They're our friends, our family, our relatives, our rich neighbors. He's talking about reciprocal relationships. He's talking about people that your relationship with them is mutually beneficial, that, that you you give and they give. That Sometimes you make sacrifices for these people. Sometimes you make tons of sacrifices for them. So he's not saying that you never go out of your way for these people. But what he's saying is these are the people that when you make sacrifices for them, you have a reasonable expectation 
that if you needed them, they'd be there for you. These are the people that you invite to your parties, the people you invite to your birthday, the people that you spend holidays with, the people that you feel natural hanging around with. They're comfortable, enjoyable. You don't have to, to, it, you don't have to cross a lot of barriers uh, in order to communicate and understand each other. And then there's a second group of people. The, the truth is everyone has this first group of people in their lives, but, but not everyone even has this second group of people in their lives. This, this is a group of people that Jesus defines as the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Basically, he goes on to define them as the people who couldn't pay you back even if they wanted to. They're not like you. They don't think like you. They don't talk like you. They don't act like you. They're not easy to relate to or to spend time with. They're broken in areas that you feel like you have it all together. And sometimes it's hard to really relate to people that are broken in areas that you, have it, that you feel like you have it together because you wonder why they don't have it together. You figured out how to have it together. And, and, and a lot of times we have a little bit of patience, right? So we just tell them how we figured it out. And if it works, then great. And if it doesn't, then we're like, now what on earth is the problem? Like, I, before, I get it. You didn't know me. No one had told you how to fix it. But now you do. What's wrong? There's no excuses anymore. Uh, the, these people, uh, these are the relationships where you always find yourself giving more than receiving. And these kinds of relationships don't last that long, usually, because... Uh, there's only so long that you feel like giving more than you receive. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know that the Bible calls us to expand our horizons and to, uh, to form relationships. It calls us to expand our horizons to include this second group. We, most Christians understand that. Most Christians don't believe that they are only to spend time with people like them. They, they recognize, yes, as a Christian, I need to expand my horizons, and I need to, uh, to, to include people that are different from me in my life. But that leads us to a question. How should Christians relate to the poor or to those that are radically different from them? What, 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 what should be, if someone were to say, what, what's the Christian response to, the, to poverty or to the poor or to people who are different? I think most people, the first thing that would come to mind would be Christians are called to serve the poor. We're called to serve those who are radically different than us, those who are broken in areas that we may have it together. We're called to take our gifts, take our resources, take the blessings that God has given to us and share them liberally with others who are in need. Christians are called to serve the poor. Well, we, when we think, we think then of, of soup kitchens, volunteering at soup kitchens, or volunteering uh, or, or going on mission trips and building houses, or giving money to charity. These are the ways that we think. This is what it looks like to, to include the second category of people in our lives. Now, I want you to hear what I'm going to say, because the thing is, serving the poor is absolutely necessary. Serving the poor is necessary. Serving the poor is good. There are countless passages in the Bible that call us to serve the poor. And so don't hear anything 
that I'm going to say today to disparage serving the poor, but I am going to tell you that this passage makes it really clear that the Christian response to the poor has to be a lot more than serving them. That's what Jesus is coming here. So when I speak of serving the poor and I contrast it to what Jesus is saying here, I'm not trying to disparage it. I'm just trying to say more. Good, but more. So let me tell you why serving the poor just isn't good enough. You see, when you serve the poor, there are certain distinctions that always remain. I I could pick any example, but let's just pick a soup kitchen. A soup kitchen, there's distinctions that remain. One group of people eat before they get there. Then they stand on one side of the table. They wear plastic gloves on their hands. Their job is to make sure that everybody gets the same amount so that nobody complains and gets angry. The other group of people are dirty. They, they, they smell. They come in with nothing. They bring an empty plate. They get their food. They go and they sit, and then the other group goes home. There is no way anyone could walk in and not be able to tell the difference just by looking between the haves and the have-nots, between the servers and the people being served. There's distinctions. We are sacrificing and, and, and they are gaining. We feel good when we leave a soup kitchen. They don't. The soup kitchen just reminds them that of feelings of inferiority and feelings of shame. You go to a soup kitchen and leave feeling better. They don't. Those are distinctions that God is calling us to break down. I recently read a book by a 50-year-old successful businessman that said, I cannot stand in lines at buffets, even five-star buffets, because it brings back too many memories of shame standing in line with my mom, waiting to get food. He's 50 years old, and the shame of standing in line to get food hasn't left him. What I love about Luke 14 is Jesus comes to destroy these distinctions. And this text says, he says, you don't need to find some poor people and, 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 and figure out how you can serve them. This text is not saying the next time Thanksgiving comes around, instead of celebrating it with your family, why don't you go and volunteer at a soup kitchen, you know, like, like the president does. Uh, what, that, that, that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is this. When you normally are having a meal at your house and you got your friends and your family and your relatives and they're all coming over, don't stop. Don't stop there. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Invite people who normally you would ignore. Invite people who have nothing to pay you back. Invite people who are hurting. Invite them into your home and around your table. And so maybe we would take that and we would say, okay, okay, a couple times a year, I can do this. I'll, I'll, I'll give a pep talk to my family. We'll work it all in. We'll, kinda, we'll all kind of know what's coming, and then we'll do this. But he says, no, no, no. When you do this, don't think about it as a service project. It's not a service project that you're just doing a family service project. That's not what he says. I want you to notice something crazy. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, you know what Jesus is talking about? He's talking about a normal dinner. He uses the word for dinner or banquet, right? You see those words? 
Those are the normal words for a meal in the, in the Greek language. He's just talking about supper. He's talking about dinner. He's talking about lunch. He's talking about a normal meal. Then you get to verse 13, and, and the poor are invited. And you see what Jesus does in verse 13? He changes the word. Now, the only difference between the, the, the meal in verse 12 and verse 13 is that in verse 13, the poor are there. That's the only difference. The food's not different. The occasion's not different. But Jesus thinks that difference, the difference between the poor being present and the poor being absent, is so big that you can't use the same word for those meals. They're not the same thing. The one is normal. The one everybody does. The other's a feast. I mean, Jesus basically comes and he says, what is it that makes something a feast? I bet you ask most people, and what makes something a feast is the food. Or maybe what makes something a feast is the occasion. Jesus says, no, the food doesn't make a feast, and neither does the occasion. The company makes a feast. I don't care what you're eating. If the poor are there, it's a feast. In this passage, Jesus is calling us to break down the distinctions. He is calling us to invite the poor you see what he's doing? That's why I'm saying break down the things. He's calling us to invite the poor into the parts of our lives normally reserved for friends, family, and rich neighbors. So the parts of our lives that usually only they get to be a part of. So food is his example, but, but just think whatever parts of your life you normally reserve only for people like you, those are the parts he wants you inviting the poor into. You see, this passage is, it's about a lot more than food. It's about relationship. The passage is about treating the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind with the same sense of love and honor and respect and appreciation that you have for your friends, your rich, rel- your rich neighbors, and your relatives. One woman who was stuck in poverty told the person who interviewed her, I know people do a lot for me. But what I really want is someone to be my friend. That's why even what we just heard, this mentorship program, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's what they're missing. What this woman longed for was a friend. She wanted to sit at the table and eat with someone instead of standing on the other end of the table to receive food from someone. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this verse. He's calling us to open our eyes and to invite people who may have nothing to offer us in our minds into a relationship. And like I said, I already qualified it enough, but I'm not trying to be hard on soup kitchens. Soup, without soup kitchens, the poor would starve. We need soup kitchens. It's a great thing if you work at a soup kitchen and if you serve at a soup kitchen. It's great. What I'm just saying is the poor also need friends. And what we just heard is it's a lot easier for them to find soup kitchens and friends. And in this passage... In this passage, Jesus is calling us to be friends. At our church, we call this feasting with the poor. And like I say, these verses have had a radical impact on my life, the life of my family, and our church over the last nine years. In fact, I've seen more walls broken down through the application of this verse than I have in anything else we've ever done as a church. 
It all started back in 2009. I, we just moved from Minnesota into El Cajon. I never even been to El Cajon before until I moved there to plant a church there. So I moved into El Cajon, got an apartment. My wife was working at Starbucks because I didn't have no insurance or anything, and I didn't, wasn't making money. So I'm supposed to start a church, and she's supposed to uh, keep the insurance going at Starbucks and so, uh, <laughs> in case anything happens. So, so I go to visit my wife in between breaks. There's a homeless guy sitting out there begging for, for some money. And so I invite him in. I, we sit down at the table. His name's Delbert, Del. And uh, he's 70-some years old. He's a Vietnam vet. He's an African-American guy. Uh, he's got some stories. We sit there, buy him a coffee. We're talking. And uh, after a while, he finally tells me that, that Friday, February 6, 2009, that Friday was his birthday. Well, my birthday's coming up, he says. And so then I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I Del, what are you doing for your birthday? And he just gave me this blank stare. I mean, he's homeless, and so he just stared at me. And so then I followed up. You know, I'm uncomfortable with silence, as you can probably tell, and with blank stares. So, uh, so, so, so I followed up with, do you have any friends? And, of course, that just deepens the stare. And I realized oh, that was probably a second bad question. And so finally I decided instead of trying to lead him to my idea uh, through questions, which wasn't working, I would just tell him my idea. I said, no, Dell, sorry, sorry. Dude, here's what I'm saying. I was like, listen, I was just thinking, my wife, why don't you invite all your friends to my house this Friday night and we'll have a birthday party? I was like, my wife will make spaghetti. I'll buy you a cake. We'll celebrate your birthday. It'll be fun. He's like, I like that idea. That sounds great. I was like, I'll pick you up at Starbucks. I'll, 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 however many trips you need. Just, just bring everybody here. I'll pick you up. We go to my house. Birthday party. He's like, all right, all right. So he leaves. My wife, we get in the car to go home a little later. And she's like, oh, I saw you met a little friend there. She's kind of laughing with me or whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah. And uh, she's like, what do you guys talk about? I was like, oh, you'll never believe what we talked about. I was, <laughs> so I was, I was like, uh, I said, we're, uh, I, I invited him and all of his friends over for his birthday on Friday. I told him you'd make spaghetti. And she just starts laughing. I mean, she's laughing like you guys are laughing. And I can tell something about her laugh. She thinks I'm kidding. Uh, so uh, so I've been married two years at the time, and I was smart enough to know when my wife thinks I'm kidding, you don't tell her anything differently. So, uh, so, 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 so she thought I was kidding, and that just told me she's just not quite ready for, uh, for, for what I just did. So, uh, so I just kind of let it go. And, um, and then Friday morning came around, and we woke up, and she didn't have work that day, so I knew that. And, uh, and I just told her before I got up to, to go to work, I was like, uh, babe, that thing I told you, the other day, that, that was real, you know, like, uh, Del is really coming over with all his friends tonight, so, so, so uh, we, we better figure out something. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so she's like, oh, okay, I guess, so I, I told her, I'll help you, whatever you need, which is, it's going to be great, we're going to love it. So, uh, so she made spaghetti, and, uh, and I bought him a cake, and uh, Del brought six of his friends, and we had a meal, and, uh, and something just happened. It was the middle of the meal. It was insane. It was so much fun. We were laughing and just talking and just having the greatest time. And I did one of those things, again, that I probably shouldn't have done. But I was like, guys. And they looked at me. And, and I said, wouldn't this be amazing to do every week? And they were like, yeah, it would. And so that was, uh, that was in 2009. And every single Friday for the last eight and a half years, uh, we've invited all the homeless in the city of El Cajon to our house. Uh, we've had 71 of them before for dinner. 
Uh, we averaged between 40 and 60. Uh, you know, it just grew every year. And uh, my wife's still making dinner. The first three years, it's just me and my wife doing it. And we just made spaghetti every night. That's just what you got. So, uh, but now my wife's expanded the menu to four different things. And uh, we had pulled pork a couple days ago, 30 pounds of pulled pork. Uh, so, uh, yep, yeah, and, uh, and they all come over, and now we got a bunch of people from the church to come over and help, and uh, we, 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 we eat, and we sit out there, and uh, we have a good time, and then we do a little Bible study, and uh, I remember, uh, it, it's real sweet now, we have a lot of people from the church, it's a missional community, they've all embraced what we're doing, it's, it's, it's been amazing, uh, but I'll never forget, uh, I'll never forget about three years in it, when me and my wife were still the only ones doing it, uh, it happened that a Friday night came on Christmas Eve. And, uh, and you know, Christmas Eve is like a fun holiday for the family, you know what I'm saying? And so we had a bunch of friends at the church. We had a church full of young people that were all cool. And, uh, and, and then uh, we, had, we had a lot of different demographics, but we also had a lot of cool young people in our church. And uh, they all invited us for a big party that, the church, that everyone was having, played games, a lot of fun. And we were like, man, what are we going to do? Friday's Christmas Eve. Uh, we're like, should we cancel it? Should we not cancel it? And we're trying to think. And, and finally, we decided, we, we were still only doing spaghetti at the time. We decided, you know what? My wife never made a turkey before. Uh, it's still pretty early on in, in marriage. And so we're like, why, why don't you make your first turkey? We'll throw a big meal. We'll just have a really good time. We'll play games. And we'll invite everybody over for Christmas Eve, you know. And uh, let's, let's just keep Friday on. And so, uh, so we did that. So my wife made a turkey, and we had mashed potatoes, and we had everything, eggnog and hot chocolate, and 18 homeless people came that night to our house. It was dark and windy and a little bit rainy, and uh, they all came in, and we ate, and we played games. I, I made up a bunch of fun games that we could play, and we were just laughing and playing games, and, and we sat down, and nobody wanted to go back outside. It was cold and rainy, and the wind, you could hear it going against the windows. And so we sat down in my living room, and uh, we had a Christmas tree, and the lights were on. And we just talked about Christmas. We just talked about how when the Son of God came, he decided to be born outdoors in a stable. Because, you see, the people he wanted to celebrate the first Christmas with were a bunch of dirty shepherds. And, you see, he didn't want them thinking about the way they smelt when they were supposed to be worshiping him. And he didn't want them feeling insecure about the way they were dressed or about the fact that they're ceremonially unclean. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but you know the Son of God was born outside. He, he picked the place because... He thought it was the most hospitable place to invite shepherds. It's hospitality that had him born in a manger. Before he picked the manger, he picked the company. I'm going to have shepherds at my birth. So that kind of limits where I'm going to be born if I'm going to make them feel comfortable, if I'm going to be hospitable, if my birth is going to be more about them than me, then maybe my birth should be in a stable, and maybe I'll 
take my first bed to be a manger. And when you talk about that with 18 hopeless people sitting in a group, and you get to tell them about this God that left heaven to come and to be born outside, to be hospitable to dirty shepherds, and you're sitting there, and they're nodding, and they're, they're embracing it, and you are just thinking, what was I thinking? This is Christmas. I never in my life felt Christmas like I felt it that night. Never. To this day, that is the best Christmas Eve I've ever had. Let me tell you, every other Christmas Eve I've ever had has been a meal with friends. This was a feast. This was a feast. This is that's all there was to it. It was a feast. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to break down those barriers. You are celebrating Christmas and feeling like this is actually what celebrating Christmas is supposed to be. Uh, one more just brief story about how God has used this in our life. Uh, a few years ago, three years ago, we had a bunch of street kids start coming. It, the, the, the group just always ebbs and flows and different people. And, and so we had a bunch of street kids coming. And we had this one girl that she would never come inside she was hated God, atheist, and never come inside, wouldn't even come in to get the food. She made her boyfriend bring her the food out, and she would take the food and just leave. Uh, I just wanted nothing to do with our house or what we were trying to do. Uh, and then one day she came inside, and she ate. And then one day she stayed for the Bible study, and she was so smart. She's asking all these really antagonistic questions, but then she would listen. And she would nod, and afterwards she came. She's like, this is amazing. Thank you. This is great. I can't wait to come back. And she started coming back more and more, and, and then she got pregnant. And then she went to Planned Parenthood to kill her baby. And, uh, and they called her name. And she got up to follow the nurse, and I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, but God did something. And she said she turned around, and she was scared to death. And she just ran, and she said she ran out the doors, and she ran down the sidewalk, and she ran through the parking lot, and she ran until she couldn't see that three-story building anymore. A couple days later, she hit rock bottom, and she tried to kill herself. She woke up the next morning somehow. I don't know how. And uh, she's still alive, and she didn't know how either. So she decided to come by our house, and the Tell us that she gave up and she just wants to be a Christian. So she came by and we talked to her. And a couple of weeks later, she came and she asked me if me and my wife would adopt her baby. And uh, now I got this little three-year-old boy named Malachi. And uh, he's the cutest, most precious little thing in the world. His mom, she's off the streets. She's a senior at UC Davis. She has a full-time job. She's getting straight A's. She'd been on the streets since she was eighth grade. Uh, she's coming back for Christmas, so she's going to spend Christmas with us. It's going to be sweet. It's crazy. My kid, on a side note, just side, my kids, grandpa, grandma, and dad also come to my house every Friday night. For, for They're all meth addicts, so they come to my house every Friday night uh, for food, and we take family pictures with them every once in a while. So... Uh, but, um, but yeah, so, so, because, so, so, yeah, so they're all, and Marissa's not there anymore because she got out of it, so praise God, she, she escaped, but the rest are still in it, but 
So the call of this text is to expand our horizons and to break down barriers that divide us from others by inviting those who are radically different from us into our homes and into our lives. And when we do this, Jesus says, you call it a feast. Now I want to tell you why I think this text is such a big deal. Because you see, I don't think that this is just a good strategy for breaking down barriers. I don't think this is just Jesus's strategy for reaching the poor. I don't think that. I think there's, I don't think, I also don't think this verse is just this, another example of this crazy, difficult command that Jesus gives that you don't know exactly why, but it's just what it means to be a Christian, and he just expects us to do it. I don't think that's the case at all. You see, I think that there's a reason that Jesus calls us to invite those who can never pay us back into our homes and into our lives. And I think there's a very specific reason that when we do, he tells us we're supposed to call it a feast. You want to know the reason? The reason is because that is exactly what our God has done for us. You see, we are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame that Jesus has come. And guess what he's come to do? He's come to invite us to a feast, back to his home for a feast. That's what he came to do. You may not feel like it, but the Bible says you are spiritually poor and that you have nothing to offer God. You know why it's really important that we have people that can't pay us back in our homes? Because those are the only people that God has in his home. The only people in heaven are people that can't pay him back. You can't even relate to God if you only have people in your home that pay you back. The only way you'll ever relate to God in this way is by having people in your home that can't pay you back so you can relate to what it's like for God to have us in his home even though we'll never be able to pay him back. Spiritually poor, unable to pay him back. Spiritually crippled, unable to get to him on our own. Spiritually blind, unable to even see our need for him unless he were to open our eyes. Revelation 3, 17. For I say, for you say, I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's who all of us once were. We were born dead in our sins with nothing to offer God. There could simply be no greater gap than the distance between us and God. He's perfect. We're riddled with imperfections. He's pure. We're defiled. He's infinite. We're finite. He's good. Our hearts are deceptive and wicked. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us Jesus looked on us with compassion and he left heaven and he came to earth to invite us to a feast, and make no mistake, heaven will be a feast. Heaven's not a soup kitchen, and Jesus isn't going to be there with no plastic gloves on his hand making sure we each get enough, and in heaven, you and I aren't some token guest. We're not the token poor there to meet his quota. No, in heaven, we're the honored guest. We're the wife, the bride, or the groom. It's a feast for us. You see, I think one of the things Jesus is trying to teach us is that what makes something on earth a feast is how much it reflects heaven, how closely it reflects heaven. 
So the more closely something reflects heaven, the, the more rightly it's named a feast. Heaven is the feast from which all other feasts get its name. That's why Jesus changes the word. That's why the feast is about more than the food. It's about the company. The feast, that's why when we invite the poor and the lime and the blind and the crippled into our home, it gives a foretaste of heaven. It's a picture of what that is going to be like. It's a picture for us as we do it, like I experienced that Christmas Eve, and it's a picture for the poor as they watch, a picture of what Christ is offering them. Words are cheap, and sometimes the poor need more than words. They need to see it. Here's the thing. How on earth are the poor who already struggle deeply with feelings of insecurity and shame and inferiority, how are they supposed to believe that there is a God who is holy and pure and who loves them enough to invite them into his spotless house for a massive feast if his people on earth won't even invite them into their earthly homes. Hopefully it's becoming clear that what we have in Luke is simply a call to live out the gospel. It's not an arbitrary verse. It's not an arbitrary command. It's not just something that you do to be a, to, to, as a Christian. It is what it looks like to live out the gospel. It is a call to reflect the way God has treated you in the way you treat others. It's Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I have to warn you. There is a reason why so few people choose to walk this path. There's a reason we prefer to invite our friends and relatives into our lives, and we seek to keep the poor and the broken at arm's length. There's a reason we'd rather go somewhere to serve the poor than have the poor come into our homes for a feast. You see, the truth is this. Feasts cost. They're costly. Feasts aren't free. Feasts cost. Feasting the way that Jesus has called us to feast comes at a steep price. Most of the reasons you've probably given in your head for not doing this are real. Things will get broken. Things will get stolen. People will take advantage of you. People will ask you for far more than you can give. Every reason you've probably given for not doing this, many of them are real. But I will also tell you something even worse. I'll tell you, once you actually start doing it, what you find is that these little inconveniences are nothing compared to the real cost. I'll tell you the real cost. The real cost is that you hear these people's stories and you fall in love with them. And then circumstances or foolish decisions or corrupt policies or enslaving addictions often come and destroy their lives. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. The real cost is watching this prostitute get pregnant for the fourth time. In the first three, she did drugs the whole pregnancy and had the adopted parents throw her in a hotel and she gave them their babies. But this one she decided to keep. 
And so she came and she said, I'm going to keep this baby and I want to change my life and I want to get it all figured out. And so she started coming to church and she started coming to a small group and she was amazing. And, and she started doing a Bible study with my wife and getting mentored and she was about to get baptized. And for months, she, she just became this zealot for the gospel. It was amazing to see what God did until you get a call five months into her pregnancy to come get her real fast and you have to go grab her and you have to take her to the hospital where she loses the baby, the one she cleaned up for, the one she gave up drugs for, the one she wanted to keep. And she says, forget it. And she walks away from God and she walks away from the church and she says, I don't care about anything anymore. The real cost is not the guy that calls you up every single morning at 6 a.m. And I'm a late at night guy and, an early, and a late in, a late in morning guy as well. So, uh, so like uh, every single morning, Andre calling me up, pastor. I was like, what, Andre? He's like, I need something encouraging about Jesus. Get me out of bed. So he has to get up a little early because he has to get out of, you know, he's living on the streets. He's got to get out of where he's at. So every morning when the sun rises, I have to give him something encouraging about Jesus to get him out of bed. <laughs> but the real cost isn't those 6 a.m. phone calls. The real cost is the morning you don't get that call because he decided to walk in front of a trout. And he's dead. And he was my good, good friend. We had this guy named Jack. He came for five years. Finally, five years into coming. He was an elder on the street. He'd been on the street all his life. He was 55 years old. Everybody knew him. He was Samoan. One day, in the middle of Bible study, he just starts to share. And he tells us about how his brother was disabled. He had eight kids in his family, but his younger brother was disabled, and their family, uh, this disability was something that was, was frowned upon, and so they, they beat him up, and they abused him, and they, his parents hated his younger brother. All the other brothers and sisters didn't care, but he stood up for his brother, so they beat him up too. They put him and his little brother in dog collars, and they put him in the backyard. They lived outside. Sometimes they give him food. That's when he was five years old. He finally escaped the dog collar, and he broke into the neighbor's house. The police came, and they found him in the refrigerator at five years old, feeding his little four-year-old brother. They took him to foster care. They decided to separate him and his brother. He couldn't handle it, so he left, lived on the streets all his life. I remember after he shared and everybody was kind of crying, I said, I got a verse for you, Jack. He said, okay. He turned to Psalm 2710, and it says, Though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And we talked about how God takes us in. And from that day, he just changed. He started praying. He started coming and reading his Bible. He just would pray, and he would just say, Father God, I'm so happy you're my father. My mom and dad forsake me, but you're my father. Jack would come to church, and he would sing so loud. It was so loud that everyone in our church knew him. And uh, 
and he didn't know when the song stopped. And when we would have, we used to have like guest people come in and we'd worship for us, and they would come to me afterwards and they would be like, I don't know if I can do this again. And I'd be like, why? He's like, because I'm getting so thrown off because I don't know when I'm supposed to stop because he won't stop his note and then I don't know when to start and I get my, I'm losing my place in the song. Jack was amazing. We had a Bible study on Wednesdays that he always, or on Tuesdays at the library he always used to come to. And then, and I don't know why God does this. It's just so crazy. But then one day he just rides his bike in front of a car on accident and he gets hit and I get a call that I have to come and and I have to get him, and, and, and then we have to do a funeral for him. And the biggest funeral my church has ever done was for a 55-year-old homeless guy. It's, it was full because uh, everybody knew him, and everybody loved him. I wish he was still here. Feast cost. There's no way around it. Feast cost. They always cost. But here's the thing, I don't know why it should surprise us that much that feast cost. It shouldn't surprise us that it cost to invite the poor and the broken into our homes for a feast, because we have an entire book that tells us how much feast cost. That's what this book is about. It's about how much our God was willing to pay to invite poor people like us to his house for a feast. Talk about protecting your family. What if our God protected his family? He gave the life of his only son so that he could have poor, rebellious abusers like us into his home. First Peter tells us the cost of that feast was not bought with silver or with gold, but with the precious blood of God's only Son. Feasts cost. They've always cost. They cost our God, His only Son, and they'll cost you more than you can imagine. Love anyone and your heart's going to be broken. Love the poor. And it'll be broken over and over and over and over and over again. But let me tell you something. You've got a father who knows what a broken heart feels like. He listened to his only son cry out in pain and he turned his back on him when he hadn't done nothing wrong. He knows what a broken heart feels like. He knows what it's like to love someone a lot longer and a lot deeper than you've ever loved anyone and then to lose them. One of the reasons God gives us communion and one of the sweet things about taking it this morning is that one of the purposes of communion is to remind you how much feast cost. Communion is just a picture of the feast that you're one day going to enjoy in heaven. 
But built into communion is a reminder of how much that feast cost. But it's not just a reminder of how much the feast cost. It's also a reminder that it's been paid for in full. Yes, the feast costs. But this one has been paid for. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are the poor who Jesus shed his blood on the cross in order to rescue and invite into his home for a feast? Do you really, really believe that? Have you experienced the grace of God that though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might, might be made rich? I don't know how you came here today. I don't know what's going on in your life. But the gospel comes to tell you, you do not have to leave here poor. It doesn't matter how you came. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what's going on. You don't have to leave here poor. You don't have to leave here lonely or hopeless or afraid. The Son of God shed His precious blood to invite you to a sweet feast. You could go holding the invitation you can go knowing that the best is still to come. You can know, go, and everything sad is going to be untrue. That's why you can let the sad in right now. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's not going to last. You and I have been invited to a feast, a feast that outweighs anything we deserve, exceeds anything we could repay. And when we understand that, when we begin to grasp all that our God did to invite us to a feast, all of our excuses begin to crumble and we find ourselves longing to communicate this love to others. We want to go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame to come. Come! Isn't that crazy? You have a message that you can give to anyone that they don't have to be poor forever. So I encourage you. I encourage you. Look around. It's so amazing. You have, you have an opportunity here where, where you can get a relationship with someone that's needy and you can do it in a safe environment and it can be a, a, a first step and, and See, you have opportunities. Take those opportunities. This is, that's such a great opportunity. I'll work together in doing it. That, um, just, I just encourage you. Uh, when you meet with the poor, see in them a reflection of your spiritual condition and how your God loved you and was patient with you. So, this morning my prayer is that you've heard the gospel and I pray that you'll receive it, that you'll receive the love of your Savior, that you'll rest in, in all that he has done for you, that as you take communion, you'll consider the feast that he has prepared for you and how much he paid for it and the fact that it's paid in full. It's a privilege to be able to feast now with those who can't pay you back. It's a privilege to be able to reflect for this world the glories and the joys of heaven. It's like we get to be kids. 
We get to look a little like our dad for, for a little while. It's a privilege to look like our dad. We got the best dad. It's a privilege to get to, to look like him just a little bit. And though it may cost you, in the end, when you get to the feast, you will know that it was worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, who are we that you would love us? Who are we that you would shed your blood for us, that you would leave heaven and come down to earth and give your life for us? Lord, I'm just so, so thankful that when you decided what the poor needed, it was more than service. You decided that what you would give would be more than service. You decided you would come and you would give us family. You would adopt us into your family. You weren't going to serve us and leave us, but you were going to come and grasp us and adopt us and bring us home with you. Thank you. We don't deserve it. We cannot pay you back. But you knew that. You knew that long before you saved us, and that's why you paid it all in full. So thank you. Thank you. Help us to experience, to receive, to appreciate your love this morning in a greater way. And then let it overflow out of us onto others, God. Help us. And I do, I just want to pray just for a second for the poor that we know. I pray for the poor in my life. I pray for the poor and the broken and the hurting in all of the lives of everyone here. I pray for the ones they already know, and I pray the ones that they're going to know this year. And God, I just beg, God, just would you let there be some good stories? Some stories of salvation, some stories of rescue, some stories of life. Would you take a few of these poor and would you just pull them out of the mire and rescue them and set them free? God, give us some good stories. In Jesus' name, amen.